Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Pithy Phrase here, Garrisonovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. Fun fact about my week here. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be taking a look at Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky. Matt, normally this is the point where I'd ask you what you're drinking, but that would actually be jumping the gun tonight because we have a drinking buddy, Caitlin Shirley, also known as Dostoevsky or doesn't she? Caitlin has a PhD in comparative literature, and her thesis largely is about the topic of tonight's episode, so get ready for us to get blown completely out of the water. Uh, Caitlin, would you mind introducing yourself? Dostoevsky would demand that you bear your life story to us. Oh, yeah, totally. So um, <laughs> uh, I'm Caitlin, and I run the Dostoevsky or doesn't she social media accounts and also host a book club on a Discord server. And as you all said, I have a PhD in comparative literature with a research focus on Russian, French, and German 18th and 19th century literature. And my dissertation is entitled Dostoevsky and the Rousseau Trap, Considerations on the Man of Nature and Truth and on His Proposed Reformation. And I got into Dostoevsky my sophomore year at Sarah Lawrence where I had initially gone for creative writing to be a poet, and I encountered Dostoevsky in a literature course entitled Dostoevsky in the 1860s. And at the same time, I was doing a moral philosophy class wherein we were reading Rousseau. And as I read Notes from Underground, the first Dostoevsky text I ever read, I realized he was talking about Rousseau in a good portion of it. And the comparative literature that was always in me, I guess, was like, all right, here it is. <laughs> and my professors that year told me, save it for your dissertation. And 13 years later, I did. <laughs> well, that's uh, a, a wonderful case of uh, professors actually, um, not actually, professors are always very helpful, but um, usually they are uh, very ready to help someone get into some ideas. And uh, I would say it's really, really impressive that you actually managed to carry through that one 13 years later through with that one excuse me oh yeah, yeah i i learned russian for it you know <laughs> <laughs> uh that's a mistake we've all made now so that's good that we're all in this together <laughs> once or exactly. twice yeah so your background in dostoevsky has already been explained but can you talk to us about why you selected the work uh for us this week we previously talked about that and and you came to the conclusion that this would be the best one for us to talk about especially for an audience who may not necessarily be familiar with dostoevsky can you talk about why uh, you thought that. Yeah, totally. Um, I was thinking about the other sort of major Dostoevsky texts, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, The Adolescent, Brothers Karamazov. And I realized, number one, they're all quite long and would be difficult for us to really do a in-depth discussion on. And then I thought about how Notes from Underground is kind of a pre it's a precursor to all of those texts and Konstantin Michalski actually said that before Dostoevsky's work is disclosed to us as a five a vast five-act tragedy Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, A Raw Youth, Brothers Karamazov, Notes from Underground introduces us to the philosophy of tragedy. In the bilious and unsightly chatter of the paradoxalist, the Russian philosopher's greatest insights are expressed. And that's from Dostoevsky's Life and Works, and I think just us talking about the text that sort of lays the theoretical foundations for everything that uh, follows it would be a good way for people who hadn't read much Dostoevsky or any Dostoevsky to sort of understand what those major texts are about. 
I, for what it's worth, I started with this and it was so difficult when I read it the first time, but I think it was worthwhile sticking with it and reading it a second time for this episode tonight. I was like, hey, I know some of these words. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's engaging with so many different philosophers and thinkers that you it can be difficult to keep track of who he's engaging with at any given moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the first half of the book, not to get into it too much, but I definitely, had I not had a, a very good introduction in the copy I had and, and also familiarity with some intellectual movements of the Russian intellectual zeitgeist of this time, I probably would have been pretty lost. Yeah, it's a pretty deep text and just really dealing with a lot of other thoughts that were circulating at the time. Definitely. So if you're not familiar with that, it can be rather inaccessible. But the first time I read it, I don't really remember it feeling inaccessible. And maybe that's because I knew the Rousseau, which is such a big part of it. But I don't know. It just really... I could really see this sort of character in a lot of, not a lot, but some people in the world, you know, and just the way that this character as one of those original existential characters really is part of modernity, you know? Yeah. Just super self-aware and all that stuff. Right. I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, we've got one last question for you. And that is, this is not about the work or your background, really. Just it's a question for you. If you had a choice and you could strike any book from Russian literature courses worldwide, which one would you do and why? The Kreutzer Sonata, because it's just terrible (laughs) and advocates for terrible things. Uh, That was a very fast answer. I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I I read it in a course called Madness and Mad Men in Russian Literature, and I hated it and got into a fight with a Tolstoy person about it. And I just, you know, after he went kind of crazy, I just don't appreciate his work. Well, there we go. Yeah. So, uh, Caitlin, you have some very big ideas that usually we launch into a summer at this point. But uh, as per your recommendation, we're going to start off with some general themes of the story, which will be helpful in understanding Uh, the summary which follows. Totally, definitely. Um, So one of the themes that I think is really obviously important in this text is the question of identity. We have in front of us uh, these notes which serve as kind of a confession of sorts and not like a legal confession, but uh, more of a spiritual identifying confession. Who am I? What have I done? And there is, you know, a sin or a bad thing that the underground man does in there that he's trying to confess. And so that quest for identity that we're reading about has always been at the heart of the search in Russian literature. It's always struggled with this inability to reconcile space and national identity. And really never has identity not been a problem in Russian literature, but it's been difficult to figure out how to expand the Russian canon instead of how to make it dependent on the West, the Westernizers, or how to isolate it, the Slavophiles and then the Soviets. And so this underground man is introducing us to a certain type of Russian and what that person wants to express about themselves to an audience really tells us not only about the underground man, but about this type of Russian and about Russia itself. Mm. 
So I think reading it with uh, this idea in mind that this is not only about this character, this narrator, but also about Russia is really important. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then just in the actual text, the notes where he talks about events from his life, we see, you know, this trope of the female victim. And in Dostoevsky, I find that the female victim is often emblematic of Russia itself. And the man who is dominating this woman in whatever sense is guilty of something against Russia. Mm. And we see this, you know, with Lisa later, there's the Bednaya Lisa trope, the poor Lisa, where poor peasant girl Lisa falls in love with the shepherd Aras. They make love. He doesn't see her the same. He says he's going to the army, which is a lie. Marries a rich widow, gives Lisa a hundred rubles to pay her off when she finds out. And then she drowns herself and her mother dies. And then Eras is miserable telling anyone who will listen about Bidnaya Lisa. And we kind of get that in this text and the idea of never stopping talking, unable to really expiate this sin or this crime. And so, you know, that link, that idea of self-identity and then the identity of Russia is going to be really important in this text. And, Hmm. um... You know, Dostoevsky ascribed to the Pochvinichesva movement, which vaguely means return to the native soil, which is slightly different from the Slavophiles in certain respects and the Westernizers in many. So the Pochvinichesva movement was largely focused on Slavophiles, like being into Russia, but unlike the Slavophiles, it kind of embraced autocracy and nationalism in certain ways. It was militantly anti-Protestant, anti-Catholic, and anti-Semitic, and basically like Russia will save the world. Hmm. And so looking at that in terms of this text, we see the underground man is very much influenced by many Western ideas. And so are many of the social philosophies that are going around in the 1860s. So that uh, question of what is Russia, what should Russia be, and who is Russia, and what is it to be Russian, we see this sort of a representative of a generation of Russians, the men of the 1840s, namely, because that's about how old the underground man would be, who are corrupted by the West and the ideals of the West. And we see this in further uh, in the later novels with Versilov in The Adolescent. We see it with Raskolnikov in Svidrigailov in Crime and Punishment. We see it with Rogozhin. We see it with Fyodor Pavlovich. We see it with Stavrogin and the Verhovinskis and demons. So this corrupting influence of the West is going to be a huge question in this text. Especially as we'll get to later on in the first half, which at least as I read it was very much the underground man addressing uh, rationalists who, at least in my understanding, could be related to Western notions influencing Russian intellectual circles. Most definitely. And we see this in what I was thinking to call like other thinkers and texts that Dostoevsky is engaging with. And there are two particular texts that I thought to focus on that kind of loom over notes from underground larger than the others. Nikolai 
Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done and Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions. So Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done is kind of like a novel manual that advocates for basically creating and then living and working in communes, which would be modeled after peasant communes, but geared toward industrial production. And so the Crystal Palace that the underground man keeps referring to throughout the first part of his notes is referring to that social utopian philosophy Chernyshevsky is espousing in his text. And then also, as I'm always obsessed with this, Rousseau's Confessions (laughs) is uh, (laughs) referred to a lot. Um, He refers to having read how Heinrich Heine said that especially Rousseau, who calling himself, who while calling himself the man of nature and truth, was basically no less false and distorted than the others. And we see the term, the man of nature and truth, l'homme de la nature et de la vérité, referenced several times in the text, and that would be a reference to the readers of Rousseau. Because Rousseau never called himself the man of nature and truth. And in the preface to his confessions, he actually wrote, here is the only portrait of a man which exists and which probably will ever exist, painted exactly after nature and in all of its nature's truth. So the term, the man of nature and truth, first appears on Rousseau's tombstone in the Pantheon after the Jacobins disinterred him from Hermannonville and moved him there, placing him alongside Voltaire, of all people, crafting this false narrative about Rousseau and his position in the Enlightenment to serve their own interests in the narrative of the Revolution. And Dostoevsky would have encountered the phrase at the Pantheon on his travels and would have been familiar with the preface to his confessions, which Rousseau's Confessions, which first appeared in the Swiss Review before Dostoevsky had traveled there. And in my research, I've pretty much confirmed that he did encounter that review and would have seen uh, that the preface, which is from the Neuchâtel edition. Mm-hmm. And while some scholars, including Pavier and Volokonsky in their footnotes, have noted that this is a mocking distortion of Rousseau's phrase, it's not Dostoevsky's distortion. It's the Jacobins, it's Heine, it's his readers who mm. originated the phrase and co-opting Rousseau's legacy for their own purposes. And, you know, my whole contention is he's saying this is in his preface, not even at the beginning of some confessions, he's saying this is a portrait of a man. This isn't Rousseau. And similar to what we see in Notes from Underground, he tries to distinguish himself from his narrator, but Rousseau ultimately fails at doing so because everyone reads it as a strict autobiography in his time and through a lot of history. So those are the texts that I think loom rather large, and we see whenever he refers to the man of nature and truth, that's going to be a reference to Rousseau. That's that's good. I think one of the hardest things as a modern reader is to try to put texts in dialogue with each other, especially ones that the writers were reading as they were writing. And so I think that's a really solid introduction to some of the major themes. And if we're already, I think we can start to dive into each of the two parts individually. Sounds good. So I had the pleasure of trying to figure out how in the world I was going to summarize part one of Notes from the Underground. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that to summarize it in three different quotes would be the best way. 
And I've structured it similarly in an argument to lots of the arguments that are made in part one. So part one, the underground, is our introduction to the underground man, starting with I am a sick man, I am a spiteful man. And it continues for 30 or 40 pages of this man's notes and thoughts and just almost stream of consciousness as he's writing this down. And so the three quotes that I chose that I think would probably best summarize this part, and we can get into discussion of it later and how it relates to some of the earlier works that we talked about, come somewhere towards the end of this. And to me, there was one main thesis that Dostoevsky is disagreeing with, and he does it in several different parts in several different ways and disagrees with every aspect of it almost individually. And the one is... The only reason that man behaves dishonorably is because he does not know his own interests, and that if he were enlightened, if his eyes were to be opened to his real normal interests, he would at once cease behaving dishonorably and would at once become good and honorable, because being enlightened and knowing what is good for him, he would see that his advantage lay in doing good, and of course it is well known that no man ever knowingly acts against his own interest, and therefore he would, as it were, willy-nilly start doing good. And you can obviously sense the mocking in there. And to me, the main rebuttal to that argument is that man has always and everywhere, whoever he may be, preferred to do as he chose and not in the least as his reason or advantage dictated. And one may positively choose to do something even if it's against one's own advantage, and sometimes one positively should. That is my idea. And so the justification for this rebuttal of this argument in his own words, is that it seems to me that the whole meaning of human life can be summed up in this one statement, that man only exists for the purpose of proving to himself every minute that he is a man and not an organ stop. Even if it means physical suffering, even if it means turning his back on civilization, he will prove it. And so as Cameron alluded to earlier, talking about this debate between rationality and irrationality, and why do we choose to do things that are clearly against what is good for us. That is kind of what I read as the main part of this first half. Yeah, definitely. And to add on to the quote that you were, uh, the quotes that you cited there, um, he also says, and where did all these sages get the idea that man needs some normal, some virtuous wanting? What made them necessarily imagine that what man needs is necessarily a reasonably profitable wanting? Man needs only independent wanting, whatever this independence may cost and wherever it may lead. Well, in this wanting, the devil knows. Really just sort of saying, like, who are all of these thinkers to say that we're all going to do well? And who is the one who's going to, like, lead us there? Like, who's go who is trustworthy enough for that? And who is going to convince man to actually do good? Are we naturally good? That's one of the main questions for a lot of philosophers. And I think the underground man is saying, look, just telling someone what to do it's gonna make them want to do something else <laughs> yeah which i think is a point he really uh kind of expounds upon when he talks about barbarity and and he says basically barbarity in the modern age is is understood as just that and those previous ages where they did not understand you know violence to be barbarity those were worse ages and then he asked well we still conduct bloodshed so is it not worse now that we understand this to be barbarity yet continue than before then we did then we did not understand it to be barbarity and and conducted it 
and kind of really hounding on the idea that uh, systematic thinkers and rationalists are really trying to put into place, as you both have mentioned, systems where, which are encouraging and like taking life down to, you know, mathematics and, and something that really cannot be because, you know, what is what is a man, as he says, without desire, without free will and without choice. And sometimes that choice or often that choice is to do bad, awful <laughs> things. Yeah, as we will see that he really goes, he goes into that in part two. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That was a wonderful transition. Part two is transitions from him kind of haranguing gentlemen, or basically the reader, to talking about some times in his past when he was a younger man working in an unnamed government office. And it happens in, in more or less three basic stories. And I'm going to be fairly brief because I think we'll get more out of them by actually discussing them than just talking through all the fine details. Uh, it opens with him thinking about a soldier that he was obsessed with in his youth. When he worked as a civil servant, he went through many phases. He was very inconsistent. Sometimes he hated all of his the cadre that he worked with. Sometimes he endeavored to become their friends. And... Uh, Oh, on one of the kind of off times, he's walking through the streets and happens to see a fight happening in a bar and someone gets thrown out of a window and he becomes obsessed with this idea of also being thrown out the window to prove a point. And he goes in, but before anything could really happen, a, a soldier, a sergeant, and the police kind of comes in and moves him aside. And what really gets to the, the, the narrator is that the, it's like he was never there. He was just simply, the, the officer put his hands on his shoulder, moved him aside, and went in to go deal with the fight. And this was a huge insult to the narrator's pride. And he becomes obsessed with this officer and spends the next two years of his life following the officer and seeing him on the street and even following him home and finding out his, uh, where he lives and becomes obsessed with this idea of dueling the officer. And he decides to get his finest clothing that he can possibly get. He sells his, I forget what exactly kind of uh, fur he has on his coat, to buy a German beaver uh, to put on there, which will degrade rather quickly, but looks really nice. And he asks for a loan from his boss in order to buy all these things he needs to really get this soldier into a duel. And then finally, when he actually comes to the event, he fails more than once. The first time he falls down and the, the officer simply steps over him. And, and like the second time he comes to it, I believe it's the second time, eventually comes to an event where he is again about to, you know, avoid this and, and just move on about his day and then finally he bumps into the officer which is his you know supposed to spark off this confrontation and then merely the officer just keeps on walking as if it never happened but he still feels like his dignity has been saved and this kind of transitions into him become trying to become more involved with social life and eventually he tries to reconnect with a schoolmate of his Simonov who uh, is kind of the inciting action which leads us into uh, the party, which he eventually goes to, is Verkov's party, which is also a schoolmate of Simonov's and the unnamed narrators. And so a little small cadre of the unnamed narrator's friends are throwing a party for Zverkov, which our narrator finds out because he <laughs> crashes their little event and invites himself to their party. And he shows up, commits money that he doesn't have to the dinner. And but the moment Zverkov shows up, he is immediately angry with him because he never really liked Zverkov. He thought he was a very unintelligent but very handsome man who got ahead by just being liked. And so Zverkov shows up, he tries to tell some funny stories, uh, which everyone is ready to curry his favor because he's higher ranked than they are, and the, un the unnamed narrator just gets into it and insults him 
and really tries to get a rise out of him and even challenges him to a duel. And they kind of conclude that he's strong. And eventually they leave after mostly ignoring him. At which point, the unnamed narrator chases off after them. And in, while, you know, kind of in a, in a sled being led there, he's like imagining this whole future where he gets arrested after this duel. And he gets sent to Siberia. And he comes back in 15 years and challenges him to another duel. Um, and then before finally forgiving him after that. And then, you know, he realizes that's just from a book he's read. And shows up in, in a brothel where he meets a young woman. The next morning, he wakes up in bed with this young woman, who he finds out is Lisa, and we transition to the third part of the third story that, that the unnamed narrator tells, which is more or less the narrator just having a conversation with Lisa, basically haranguing her for being a prostitute. Uh, he initially tries to get her life story before deciding, I guess he doesn't really care, and tells her that she's going to die in this life, and gives her his address. Finally goes home, harangues us about his servant, and while he's trying to withhold money from his servant, Lisa shows up. And he, in that moment, decides that he, in the days waiting between giving her his address and her showing up, he hates her. And he launches into an attack and explains that he had been degraded by this party he'd just been to, so now he needed to transfer that onto her. And then he breaks down crying and falls on his crouch, and Lisa, in that moment, he says, understands something that he, even he really didn't know, which is that he's a deeply unhappy man, and she kind of comforts him before leaving essentially and as she's leaving he tries to force money into her hand and while he's not looking she throws it back into the room and then leaves without ever saying anything again and our unnamed narrator is left to the life of unhappiness which leads to him starting the notes which we begin with in part one Woo! that was <laughs> that was longer than i intended but that's that's the basic idea yep yeah so obviously there's a lot to take from each of these stories and i let's go through maybe in order and we can see if we can track any overarching themes beginning with the officer this one was just funny to me i know it's probably not meant to be but the i the idea of him just so deeply fantasizing about this event and then he ends by kind of saying well this was 14 years ago um but it was still so important in his mind that it made it into these notes was mildly entertaining oh most definitely i think it really points to a lot of yeah, as you say, a lot of the themes, but in the um, opening, like first 10 pages of the text, he talks about the wish to take revenge and like regarding mm. himself as a little mouse and how he doesn't regard his revenge as justice um, and just does it out of mm. wickedness. But then in the end, the underground man, just like at the beginning when he's like, I was a wicked official. And then I and then he says, oh, I lied about that. I wasn't actually wicked and I lied out of wickedness. This is kind of a reference to that, I think, mm -hmm. where he's like lying to not only to us, but to himself. Right. Since he does, now that you pointed out, that's something that I hadn't connected before, but he does talk quite a while about what it takes in order to get revenge and kind of the like the emptiness of mind you almost have to have to be that sort of mm -hmm. certain. And, you know, people of, of consciousness like him, you know, could never come to that conclusion. Whereas in, in this, <laughs> I guess you're kind of seeing, as you sometimes do see with Dostoevsky, the, the uh, conflict between the ideal notion and how that ha actually plays out in reality. Oh, for sure. He often kind of enacts to the extreme in his texts the consequences of certain philosophies, like in Crime and Punishment with, you know... If you get to the consequences of what you've been preaching, you can put a knife in anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Badly, too. <laughs> so that's it's kind of a minor thing, which really leads into 
I guess the more important parts of this story, which are Zverkov's party and the Lisa episode, which is really the kind of the peak here. But it starts with him running to old acquaintances and reflecting on how awful that school made people. And like it turned, you know, kind of bright young boys into, you know, in his words, kind of like mean spirited, ugly creatures who were just obsessed with image and, and promotions and had nothing other in their internal lives. And yet he still wants to befriend them ish. He also hates them. That's kind of the dichotomy here. <laughs> I think that it's it is important how deeply the other people that he used to be somewhat friends with internalized the idea of rank. I know we talk about it basically every episode on this podcast, <laughs> uh, where he says that they mistook brain they mistook rank for brains. And at sort of the end of this part, after he's been just an absolute dick for the entire dinner party, he is trying to make amends, saying that he's offended them. They say, offended me? You offended me? Don't you realize that you couldn't possibly offend me under any circumstances? (laughs) And just the idea that he can't even perturb any of them in this situation because they look down on him so much for his rank and his clothing and everything about him. Right. Although, ironically, he is repeatedly offended by the fact that they don't update him on the time of the dinner moving forward or other events, and they keep telling him, even though this is probably a lie just to cover cover for the fact that they didn't want to anyway, we don't even know where you live. We couldn't have sent a letter anywhere. How do we even contact you? And he kind of rolls past that part. Yeah, he gets so angry about it. And then they arrive and they're not very apologetic. And he just like pacing around the room while they party. (laughs) I was trying to picture that in my head and it was making me laugh of just him angrily pacing behind them, making eye contact with like the waiters as everybody else was drinking and kissing each other or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. It's a pretty funny image. (laughs) (laughs) I found a lot more humor in the parts one and two than in the first half of well the more philosophical half i Mm. guess we could call it right yeah Uh, one of the difficult things for me when i'm approaching this is that he often like comes up to the edge of having a point and i almost think i want to agree with him before he keeps you know being himself in that when he's like (laughs) talking about how awful his friends are when you sit down like here are the stories that zverkov is telling about how he is you know, he lies to this woman about, you know, falling in love with her so she'll sleep with him and how his friends help him on this affair. Like, wow, he sounds like an absolute awful person. And I want to agree with the narrator, but then he just keeps being who he is and it kind of muddies the waters there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I don't think we're meant to find any of them all that appealing. Yeah, that would make the most sense that everyone here is either you are kind of, I, I guess you could almost take this men of action concept which the unnamed narrator develops in the first half of the book which he kind of puts up against himself like men of knowledge men of consciousness and apply that to the people around him and that they are all acting they're trying to move ahead in this society and they're doing things and they're kind of reprehensible Uh, but of course he is the narrator as he is very well aware is also as he says kind of a, a wicked and spiteful man so this all really leads up to the episode with Lisa, and that's when all the rest, Zverkov and, and the others, leave, and he chases after them and has this whole imagination about this life going forward, which is probably the only part where I can actually really relate to the narrator when he like has an unreasonable amount of imagining how something could go, could go before he shows up <laughs> and they're already gone, and then he sees a young woman who he already begins to hate before waking up to her next to her, I assume the next morning, or at least some amount of time later. 
Two hours. Two hours. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. That's a good fact check. <laughs> yeah, he says he'd been lying next to her silently for two hours since completing the act. And then he kind of senses her looking at him and he starts talking to her, even though it's very clear she does not want to talk. She's kind of looking at him like, why are you still here? <laughs> Which is a fact that he seems to sense and yet continues to talk for literally. I, I had I had a moment of like when I was flipping pages, there's several pages where there's not even a paragraph break. It's just blocks of text <laughs> yes. <that> he's <laughs> talking to her. <laughs> and she accuses him of talking bookishly, which... You know, I don't speak Russian well enough to uh, really explain that, but I kind of understand what I think she means, other than talking for three straight pages with no paragraph breaks. Well, also, he's invoking several different literary movements when he's um, going off at her. First, you know, he appeals to like, oh, this is what your fate is going to be. And then he's like, oh, but sentimentalism won't get me very far with her, so I gotta switch gears to a different genre. And then he's like playing the trying to play the hero, um, with you know what he's saying to her, asking her if she has a fiance, and she's like, don't bother, which is basically saying, look, you're off the hook. I don't expect you to expect you to be a hero, but this really upsets the underground man, who then decides to be as cruel as possible to her. You know, he gives her his address, tells her to come after, tells him to come to her, him after asking her forgiveness. She says he will and he leaves. But then, you know, he freaks out about how he gave her his address. He's ashamed by his poverty. What will she think, etc. And then he gets obsessed with writing a letter to his friends, Verkov and the others, who clearly didn't want him around instead of dealing with the obvious issue that is what he did to Lisa. And he finds great joy in that, and that he, when he writes the letter, he starts laughing, and he's in high spirits, and he says, you know, this will all blow over. I did this with such aristocratic grace. Many others in my position would have faltered or fumbled, but because I have such, uh, I have such humor and, and good nature that they will understand that it was merely just an act of drunkenness, and immediately forgive me, and we'll become friends. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Like they <laughs> clearly don't care and don't want him around. And yet, this is what he's focused on as he tries to avoid the very real feelings he has about Lisa. Right. As he goes back and forth between thinking that he hates her and then, like, having this weird love fantasy about her where he kind of mentors her and then she falls in love with him and then he harangues her again. Um, And it's just going back and forth as the days go on until she finally does appear. This is at the second to last page. I like this last line where he's posing this question to himself, which is better, cheap happiness or exalted suffering? Well, which is better? <laughs> yeah. And it kind of, to me, sums up the, the, the thinking, some of the questions, some of the actions that he takes, uh, the idea that suffering can be a form of happiness, it can be a form of something good. And... I don't know. I didn't quite know exactly what to make of the last. It wasn't the last line, but it was one of the last ones. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, he right before he says that, he's talking about how his insult to Lisa giving her the money after they have sex the second time. It's like he's like this insult. This is purification. By tomorrow, I'd have already dirtied her soul with myself and worn out her heart. But now the insult will never die in her. And however vile the dirt that awaits her, the insult will elevate and purify her 
dot 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 through hatred maybe also forgiveness though by the way will that make it any easier for her and so he's thinking no let me rationalize what i did to her she's going to actually lift herself up out of this situation now because i insulted her so seriously so in the end it's a good thing yeah yeah i i also kind of for me of course there's still about a page and a half left but that kind of was i guess what summed up there are of course many more complex themes to read from the book but really if you were to reduce it down to like one basic paragraph that was kind of it it's this sort of dialogue and you have many intellectual movements that dostoevsky is responding to kind of on both sides up until that point mm-hmm. getting to this essential question yeah I was thinking uh, about, you know, in the beginning, uh, the part one, Underground, he says, uh, Now, however, when I not only recall some of my former adventures that bring me uneasiness, but I'm even resolved to write them down, now I precisely want to make a test. Is it possible to be perfectly candid with oneself and not be afraid of the whole truth? And ultimately, he really is. Because in that episode with Lisa, he says, They won't let me. I can't be good. And he refuses throughout to take responsibility for what he's done. And, you know, one of the primary elements of a confession is saying, I did it, and what it is. And he refuses to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he also says, um, today, for example, I'm particularly oppressed by one distant recollection. I recalled it clearly the other day, and it has stayed with me like a nagging musical tune that refuses to be gotten rid of, and yet one must get rid of it. I have hundreds of such recollections, but some one out of a hundred emerges every now and then and oppresses me. I believe for some reason that if I write it down, I shall be rid of it, so that why not try? But then his notes never end. The author cuts him mm-hmm. off at a certain point and says, you know, it's pro- it seems to us best to stop here. But it's very clear that he fails his test. He fails to tell the whole truth and he fails to be rid of it. Mm. He never admits what he really did to Lisa. So as you're saying, the unnamed narrator is kind of left in this limbo, which maybe given that the unnamed narrator is representative much more than what he actually is, is that, do you think that kind of leads to a greater point Dostoevsky was trying to make? Yeah, actually, um, in Kutzi's article, Double Thoughts, he notes how Oswald Spengler, quoting Goethe's lament over the end of the auricular confession, brought about by Protestantism, suggests that it was inevitable that after the Reformation, the confessional impulse should find an outlet in the arts, but also that in the absence of a confessor, it is inevitable that such confession should tend to be unbounded. And so that's basically saying that without someone to confess to, and he denies that he has any readers many times, um, you're not ever going to finish that confession because you can't confess to yourself about yourself. Right. And, you know, maybe this is part of Dostoevsky's militant anti-Protestantism, which, you know, you see a lot in his more private writings. <laughs> um Right. But the unbounded confession is something a lot of these characters that are portraying men of the 1840s tend to get caught up in. They're unable to stop the confession, to finish the confession, and really say, I did it. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I've never thought about it that way until talking to you about it. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for making me think more deeply about that. Yeah. And, you know, like Nekrasov's poem as the epigraph to part two, the story of a rescued prostitute, and this being an edited text, we'd probably think this epigraph serves to buttress the underground man's deluded idea that he did rescue Lisa. 
And then mm-hmm. with the bed my Eliza trope and Rousseau has a parallel episode in his confessions where he steals a ribbon, blames it on the maid, resulting in her being fired. And Lord knows what happens to her afterward, hinting she probably became a prostitute. And Rousseau says this wait has thus lasted until this day without assuagement in my conscience. And I can say that the desire to deliver myself from this wait in some way has greatly contributed to the resolution that I have taken to write my confessions. And he devotes very few pages to the episode in a very large tome that makes up both parts of his confessions. But he returns to it in each of his subsequent autobiographical texts, suggesting that he was not able to assuage his guilt with this brief confession. And while the underground man devotes far more pages to the Lisa episode, he still ultimately fails to confess. And so this idea that they were going to be rid of it just fails. That is an incredibly interesting idea. I'm just echoing Matt's sentiments here, but that is a lot to, a lot to chew on. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, dissertation was about confession, so... (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, so I have a lot about that, but I think, you know, uh, um, she, you know, Lisa understands, as you said, how unhappy he is, and then they they have sex again, and it doesn't last that long, and she cries because he somehow insulted her during this encounter and then pays for it. And it's unclear what he might have done to insult her, but it's right after he's decided to be extra cruel to her again, and this act of giving her the money, her giving it back to him, kind of says, like, a little bit of an F you, I won't be your poor Lisa, I won't fall into that trope, which buttresses, again, his idea that he kind of purified her in some way. But it also says, I didn't need you in the first place. Which also, I guess, as we we didn't mention earlier, but when he kind of has that initial interaction with her at the, I guess it's a brothel, she shows him a letter that a, a medical student has written her expressing some desire to see her. And she's like, oh, this is someone I used to know. So everything you said about, you know, people never wanting me, well, you know, here's a counterexample to that in my own life. Yes, because he told her that story about that girl who died, the you know, the prostitute, he neglects to actually call her a prostitute. He's like, you know, Adna Dievushka, some girl died of tuberculosis in a brothel. They buried her in like wet ground, all that stuff, sort of (laughs) outlining what her fate is going to be. But he can't even name it what she is. He can't even say she's a prostitute Mm -hmm. and she died just like you will. Right. Because he can't admit his own complicity in what's happening with Lisa. I mean, he's patronizing this brothel. He's paying to have sex with her. He's part of that fate he's outlining for her. In which he kind of tries to like distance himself from when he says, I only came here because I was drunk. Exactly. You know, otherwise I never would have. I'm a respectable man kind of is implied in that statement. Yes. Which I guess provides a very interesting, I guess, further complication that you kind of have Lisa being the character who seems to be the most straightforward and honest with herself through a text full of uh, people who are very obsessed with image or self-obsessed in that way that are are not necessarily at least with the unnamed narrator not necessarily supposed to be wrong but also you can see in in various obvious fashion in the writing the limitations their thinking can place on them yeah and i think that what the way that he kind of he anticipates the reader's response throughout his text and when he points out oh i was just here because i was drunk he's 
just doing more of that. He's saying, oh, you might think this about me. Let me preempt that assumption or that judgment with this explanation. And like Bakhtin points out that the underground man kind of eavesdrops on every word someone says about him and looks at himself in all the mirrors of other people's consciousnesses. And he knows all the possible refractions of his image in those mirrors. But where we really end up getting at what Dostoevsky is doing in this text is in between what he says. It's what he doesn't say that really tells the reader who this character is we see the narrative voice really come to life in those ellipses that, you know, begin and end the text in a way, you know, I am a sick man, I am an evil man or a wicked man. And that glancing around at the reader that we see in that very first line is kind of saying, it's not my fault, but at the same time, I wouldn't care even if it were. Like, I'm sick, it's not my fault, I'm wicked, I don't care. And so he's really anticipating what the reader might think about him at any given moment. Which is, I guess, I guess as you're saying, it kind of, I don't know if this actually relates, and obviously these two writers were writing in very different eras, but it, it does make me think of, in, in Sartre's No Exit, you see the ultimate like hell these people are stuck in are simply that they can never stop thinking about the way they are being perceived by other people and the fact that they will never have those eyes off of them. In this one, this is self-inflicted in that this underground man cannot stop looking at himself in the eyes of the people around him, that he's always wondering that what they think of him, and it's always, always, they must despise me. Yep. And so he's trying to own that in certain respects and be like, I don't care if you despise me, but also it's just like, you shouldn't because I have a good reason for everything. Yes. And uh, we could talk about how much this man hates himself forever because uh, he does (laughs) quite a bit. But we've covered a major piece of what you could understand when you go into this text. Uh, Caitlin, do you have any last major things you'd want to talk about with this text? Basically, in conclusion, this is one of the least accessible of all Dostoevsky's work, in my humble opinion. (laughs) And uh, not that I regret picking it for today, but I think, you know, this is this is a difficult one. And I hope this kind of helps Mm. people who are thinking to get into it to have some basic understanding of what they might be looking for as they read. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I would agree. I would say don't get discouraged because I didn't have a good time my first time reading it. And I've enjoyed it more now. So make of that what you will. But <laughs> Yeah. A good second read never hurt anyone. No, especially not with Dostoevsky. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> that was wonderful, Caitlin. Thank you so much. That was really, really insightful. I learned a lot from this conversation. Yes, definitely. Which I knew I would, but I even more than I thought I was going to. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, before we get going, I realized we forgot to ask you, which we usually do at the top of the episode. What are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Salus Belgian style white beer, Vitbia. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, that sounds really good. That sounds good. I've not had a good white beer in a while. It's brewed in Austin, where I am currently at. Perfect. We're always supportive of local breweries. Indeed. Matt, how about you? Uh, I wish I was drinking something noteworthy or well. I'm drinking vodka mixed in with a. Mmm, how you say cherry soda from my (laughs) vending machine downstairs. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a good night. Tonight was a what was in my fridge kind of night. (laughs) (laughs) What what about you, Cameron? Uh, I am drinking, uh, this one's for you, Dad. My father gave me this beer a long, long time ago, and I've been promising that I was going to put him into this podcast for a while. 
an oatmeal stout by East Brother, uh, which is brewed in Richmond, huh. California. Uh, oatmeal stouts are the number one beer I drank when Matt and I were in Russia, so I thought this would be a good time for that. Um, but yes, and final question. A lot of questions on this podcast. Caitlin, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? Uh, <laughs> maybe like a five. Five. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, mm. you know, trying to wake up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. Matt, how about you? I am the scene that we talked about earlier where I'm the person kind of like pacing the background of the party <laughs> where I would I would like to be drunker, but uh, just again, also have to wake up tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, that's that is very fair. How did you end up? I probably only uh, probably barely a three. I um I don't have anything to Oof. wake up for tomorrow, but I do have a doctor's appointment in the afternoon, so uh, that's uh, probably don't want to go to that hungover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your doctor's like, well, I can confirm you are a binge drinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last time I saw him was before I went to Russia, so it's not going to be a good look. <laughs> And you would say, thank you, doctor, for that brilliant segue. Would you like a <laughs> podcast about drinking in Russian literature? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, um, uh, I think that is going to about do us for tonight. Uh, of course, would recommend you pick this text up. And really, it can be difficult, but it is worth sticking with it, even if you don't understand every single thing, which you don't need to. Definitely. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you enjoyed the episode, well, first of all, that makes us happy, but also grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you happen to have a few dollars to spare, you can find us at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. It'll help us buy the books we'll be reading in the future. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or visit our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And of course, you can find our wonderful guest, Caitlin, at Dostoevsky or Doesn't She on Instagram or at Dostoevsky underscore TXT on Twitter. We would like to sincerely thank Caitlin again for her generosity with her time and, of course, that wide bank of knowledge. And you will hear from us again soon. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks.